This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Something to note, all myths have many versions and variations. For this episode, we've selected those we feel are the most dramatic and entertaining and supplemented them with additional research into ancient Greek traditions. Because mythology comes from oral tradition, there's a wide variety across sources. Our myths may not always be the version you're familiar with, but we hope you'll enjoy them. The afternoon was bright and clear, full of birdsong and nature's many melodies. But none of it was as vibrant as Eurydice, Orpheus thought, as he gazed at his perfect bride. She might be human, but she glowed like a goddess. Her skin was fresh and clean as new milk, still glistening from her nuptial bath, As she twirled, joyful, through the field, her long hair filled with air and light. And when she smiled at Orpheus, her clear eyes full of trust, he felt his heart erupt into song. Hymen, the god of marriage, was late. But Orpheus, pulling Eurydice into his arms with a laugh, didn't mind. The delay meant more time to savor this beautiful, blessed day. The day his love became his wife. He buried his face in the crown of her head and inhaled. When he raised his eyes, his patience was rewarded. There was Hymen, in his swirling marriage robes, holding his torch, ready to bless the union. Orpheus grinned and grasped Eurydice's hand. The lovers stepped forward. At first, Hymen smiled kindly at the eager, beaming young couple. But then his torch started to sputter. Hymen frowned in concern and shook the torch. It only sputtered more, spinning out long, noxious trails of smoke from its weak flame. Children, I came to bless your wedding day, but I cannot speak the usual words, nor promise you good fortune. Orpheus, your voice spins out golden song and blesses all it touches. 
And Eurydice, you are as pure as any maid, but the flame does not burn steady. This union is doomed. Welcome to Mythology, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. You can find more episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythology for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Mythology in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're telling the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, an ancient Greek myth about two doomed lovers who cannot bear to part, even in the face of death. This week, we'll listen as the couple's blissful union devolves into dramatic tragedy. Then, we'll follow as Orpheus travels to the underworld for the woman he loves. Next week, we'll hear the dramatic conclusion to Orpheus's quest. The first literary reference to Orpheus is in a two-word fragment of poetry from 6th century BCE poet Ibicus, which simply says, Orpheus, famous of name. This suggests that Orpheus was already a well-known figure in oral traditions. But Orpheus's story has transformed over centuries of storytelling, making it difficult to say where history ends and myth begins. In some Greek oral tradition, Orpheus was the son of Apollo, god of music and poetry, and one of the muses, the goddesses of creative inspiration. He was a powerful singer, celebrated for his ability to affect the emotions of man, beast, god, and even nature with his art. When he sang of joy, all the world rose up and danced to the tune of his lyre, When he sang of anguish, all the world wept with him. References to the story of Orpheus and Eurydice first started to appear in art and poetry in the 5th century BCE. But it wasn't until 29 BCE, when Virgil wrote his Georgics, that the full tragic love story was put to paper. Almost 40 years later, in 8 CE, It was presented in a slightly different way in Ovid's Metamorphoses. These two great poets' versions of the story remain its best-known iterations. The tale of Orpheus and Eurydice has been the inspiration for scores of poems, plays, ballets, operas, films, and visual artworks. Feminist writers like Margaret Atwood and the poet Hilda Doolittle, pen name H.D., have revisited the myth from Eurydice's perspective, fleshing out the story in new ways. Most recently, Aeneas Mitchell's telling of the story in musical form, Hadestown, won Best Musical at the 73rd Tony Awards. 
No matter the version, the tragic tale of Orpheus and Eurydice remains as dramatic, strange, and heartbreaking as ever. Eurydice and Orpheus reclined on the grass. Orpheus's lyre lay quiet in one outstretched hand. The nature around them was peaceful, and their hearts, full of new love, were overflowing. But Eurydice, nevertheless, felt anxious. Orpheus, does it worry you? What Hymen said on our wedding day? That he didn't bless our union? That he couldn't smile and shed light and joy on our future? It doesn't thrill me, no. But you know how much I love you. How my heart sings for you, even when my lyre is quiet. Whatever challenges lay ahead, we will face them together. And I will fight for you. Eurydice stared at Orpheus's confident, sincere face, and then broke into a glowing smile. She knew Orpheus was right. He would always come for her. Evening was falling, and Eurydice kissed Orpheus on the cheek. It was time for her to find the naiads, her nymph friends, and dance with them through the forest. They'd frolic as they did every night, celebrating the chill evening air and the life that stirred around them in the shadows, the hooting owls, the scurrying rodents. Orpheus smiled at her disappearing form, content. Eurydice ran through the dense underbrush, leaping over fallen branches with her sprightly friends and twirling across the stones that littered every stream. She was comfortable here, amongst the dark, towering trees, as comfortable as in Orpheus's arms. The laughing naiads wove flowers in Eurydice's hair and draped a cloak of vines across her shoulders. They slipped their delicate hands in hers and leapt into the air. But what was that? There was someone there, amongst the trees, coming towards Eurydice and the cluster of dancing naiads. The nymphs, fearful of aggressive, unknown men, disappeared into the forest in the blink of an eye. But Eurydice was only human. She stood still amongst the trees, watching, tension stringing her body like a bow. The sounds drew nearer until a shepherd came crashing through the underbrush, he cried out to Eurydice. Beautiful girl, I see you there, a slim shadow amongst the trees, dancing like a nymph. Come to me. Come, don't be afraid. I won't hurt you. I just want a little kiss from such a forest sprite, a tender kiss to warm my cold lips. Don't run, you foolish child. You'll only make it worse. Eurydice raced skillfully through the underbrush while the shepherd, Aristius, stomped after her. He was strong and powerful and crashed through every branch in his path without slowing. He was gaining on her. But then Eurydice spotted a stream up ahead. If she could just get to the other side and put the water between herself and the shepherd, she would be safe. Eurydice leapt across the water and landed, tumbling to the forest floor. 
With a gleeful laugh, she sprang back to her feet, knowing Aristius couldn't fly across the water like she had. He'd have to slog through slowly in his heavy shepherd's garb. A final leaping dance through the forest would get her out of harm's way, back to Orpheus, back to love and peace and the sweet song of the lyre. Eurydice bounded away from the stream, homeward, her dress dirty and her feet sore, but a golden smile illuminating her face. No man could touch her, not unless she let him. She was too quick and clever. But men were not the only dangers in these woods. Fear, exhaustion, and pride in her escape clouded her mind. She forgot about the thick, ropey snakes that slithered along the forest floor. She didn't notice the dark green coil of muscle lying in the shadow of the pine, or the glassy eyes glinting in the evening gloom. As she sunk her bare toes into the loamy soil, the serpent lunged. Coming up, Eurydice and Orpheus's love is tested. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now back to the story. Eurydice ran madly through the Thracian forest fleeing from the shepherd Aristius, She lost him by launching her sprightly body over a gurgling stream, leaving him stranded on the opposite bank. Elated, she turned her mind homewards to the arms of her beloved new husband, the great singer Orpheus. So distracted was she that she didn't check the loam beneath her feet as she skipped home. That was a mistake. Hidden amongst the leaves in the black earth was the long, coiled body of a powerful snake. He sprang out of the shadows toward her. His long fangs sunk into her tender, bare flesh. Ah! Eurydice, in horror, watched her ankle puff and redden. The droplets of ruby-red blood dripped innocently from her flesh. Such a small wound, but with such large consequences. Eurydice knew her fate as she stared at the two little holes in her ankle. Her cries ceased. No one was in those dark woods to hear, not even her beloved Orpheus. This was it. The end. In the woods she loved so much, but nature 
never loved you back, not unless you could sing like Orpheus. She lay down, closed her eyes, and breathed deeply, while she still could. Orpheus, too, was lying in the grass, strumming a lovely melody on his lyre and thinking of Eurydice, of her long neck, of her quick wit and her strong legs and arms, of the way her body sank into his after she exhausted herself dancing in the woods with the naiads. But where was she? Dark night had fallen, and the stars lit up the sleeping landscape— She should have been back by now. Orpheus peered out into the night and felt his heartbeat quicken. Had some harm befallen his bride? Men were beasts, and beasts were everywhere. He had to find her. Eurydice! Eurydice! Where is Eurydice? But there was no response. The trees and the birds and the naiads were all silent. He ducked under branches. He wove through sprawling roots and swaying grasses. He made his way into the heart of the forest, the dark place where the snakes lurked in the black soil. It was there that he found her. Eurydice lay pale and still on the forest floor, Orpheus, overcome with grief, fell across her body. He clasped her cold face in his hands and kissed the two tiny pricks in her swollen ankle. They told him everything he needed to know. Lying across Eurydice's corpse, Orpheus began to sing. His voice warbled with grief. His heart had been cleft in two. But his song was all the more beautiful for the overwhelming emotion that stirred it. The forest joined his song. The naiads raised their wild, eerie voices. And so did man, beast, and flower everywhere he went as the weary weeks went on. All of Thrace was moved by his anguish. He traveled far and wide, Singing of his love for Eurydice and her tragic death, he sang of her at daybreak and as night fell, alone on the banks of rivers and amongst throngs of weeping townsfolk. Even Apollo, his father, heard the mournful sound of Orpheus's song and was moved with sadness and pity. So he descended in a flash of light to comfort his son. Orpheus jumped back at the blinding sight. Then, though Apollo was his father, he bowed. The god of light and poetry commanded respect. But Apollo raised him up gently. Orpheus, my son, you have lost your beloved Eurydice, and now the whole of Thrace weeps with you. Even on Mount Olympus the gods hear your song, and we are moved. I am so sorry for your loss. Thank you, Apollo, my father. Your condolences give comfort. My poor poet, you feel the pain so deeply. In truth, I do not know if I can go on without her. 
She was my world, my hope, my beauty, and my joy. If that's the case, my son, you must go get her. Would that I could, but her spirit belongs to Hades now. How could I retrieve her? No mortal can walk into the dark underworld and return alive. That is true, and you are a mortal man. But I am not, and I am your father. I will grant you what protection I can. If you descend into the underworld to recover Eurydice, you will be able to cross the river Styx twice. Once into the underworld, and once back to the land of the living. You will have to be brave, to face the unhappy spirits of the dead, and Hades himself, their dark king. Only with the permission of the god of the underworld will you be able to bring back Eurydice. But I see your love is strong, and I know the power of your voice. Father, dear god Apollo, I never thought to have such a chance. I promise you, I shall not waste it. I'll face the dark with a heart of steel. If there's even a sliver of hope to recover what I have lost, I will risk all. With that, Apollo disappeared in another flash of light, the exhausting work of engaging with mortals finished for now. Orpheus, in his wake, was wild with determination. He still had a chance at love and at a life with Eurydice by his side. It was no small feat for a mortal to descend to Hades. Orpheus knew that, and he was afraid. He had heard the stories about the darkness, about shaggy-haired Charon and his little boat, about the craggy slopes and the groves full of mournful shades, about the fearsome three-headed dog, Cerberus, and the elm tree that rustled with tempting false dreams. And he had heard of Hades' stony heart. Hades, god of the underworld, and the uncle of Orpheus's father Apollo, was not easily moved. But once he fell so deeply in love with Persephone that he schemed and tricked and cajoled until he made her his queen of the underworld. He knew what love was— he felt its burning need as much as Orpheus himself. Orpheus girded himself against his own fear. Perhaps his song of love and pity would stir that lover deep within Hades' cloak of shadows and darkness. The first step was the easiest. He traveled to the gates of Taenarus, the dark jaws of the underworld, buried at the back of a damp, cold cave. But from here, the journey got more difficult. Orpheus stood staring at the ominous portal, its doors shrouded by long, forbidding stalactites. And they were as heavy as they were dark. They weren't meant to open for any mortal soul more than once. He felt their terrifying chill seep deep into his bones. But what really immobilized Orpheus were the whispering spirits that guarded the gate. Anxiety, grief, disease, old age, fear, hunger, death, agony, guilty joys. They told him to turn around. They told him love was meaningless, that he was weak. 
Orpheus felt the jab slip from his ears to his mind and slowly slither into his heart. But then he felt the solid wood in his hand, his lyre. His only weapon was song, and so, stealing himself, he raised his voice and lifted his delicate fingers to the strings. The spirits went silent, listening. Even the darkest spirits of Tainerus were moved by the mournful melody. They pushed open the gates. Orpheus stared into the darkness, mind slowly clearing now that the spirits were silent. He could see nothing but an icy haze of formless mist and smoke. But Eurydice was down below. He had no choice. He plunged downwards. As the gates swung shut behind him with a grim bang, Orpheus peered through the darkness and saw the path before him. Craggy and rough, it wove through dark pine groves full of shadowy spirits, crying their own grim songs. His heart pounded with fear at the ominous sight and the strange vibrations in the air. But Orpheus's lament quieted the voices of the dead, as it had the spirits guarding the gate. They drifted towards him, heads bowed with the sorrow of his song, and pity stirred in Orpheus's breast alongside fear. These were lost souls making their way towards the river Styx, just like him, just like Eurydice. This is for her, for Eurydice, he thought, and strode down the path, holding his voice steady. He descended through the elms, pines, and twisting olives, through the mist and the smoke and the eerie glow of eternal night. The shades drifted in his wake. Finally, Orpheus arrived at the still, dark waters of the river Styx. Charon's little wooden boat sat on the shore, as innocent as a fisherman's barge on any Thracian river. It was so startlingly ordinary that Orpheus almost stopped his song in surprise. But then he saw Charon, with his matted hair, his dirt-blackened face, and his dark, cold eyes. Orpheus's fear flooded back, and his song tumbled out of his mouth like a protective talisman. Would Charon, too, be moved? Would Apollo's promise of passage across the waters hold? Charon's face remained impassive, but he stood still and listened as Orpheus sang. Then Charon nodded and beckoned. They would cross. Now it was Orpheus that hesitated. From here, the darkness would get denser, the deathly fear and sadness heavier. But once again, he steeled himself. Thinking of Eurydice, he gathered his courage. If she was on the other side of the water, then he would cross for her. He clambered into Charon's boat, and he sang on. 
As Orpheus's voice echoed over the vast expanse of water, silence rippled across the underworld. On the approaching shore, all of Hades' spirits emerged to listen to the song. Insubstantial, ghostly figures, the dead slunk forth from the darkest depths of the underworld. They drifted out from under the boughs of the great elm, whose every leaf was weighted with false dreams. The spirit's reveries paled in comparison to the allure of Orpheus's song. What voice raised a song so haunting, the souls wondered. What voice made them feel those human heartbeats once again? Orpheus gazed intently through the waiting crowds as Charon's boat approached the shore. The crowd was overwhelmingly vast, a sea of dead. But there was no room for fear in his heart as he scanned the waiting faces for Eurydice. She must be near. But he did not see her. Onwards then, he descended from Charon's boat with a bow to his ferryman and plunged into the crowd. As the spirits cleared a path before him, Orpheus saw something lurking at the back of the crowd. It was an enormous dog, and it had three heads. On each head, bloody jowls hung low over long, sharp teeth. Three sets of terrifying red eyes glared out of deep-set, shadowy sockets. Orpheus felt his song falter. This must be Cerberus, the bronze-voiced, three-headed hound. Apollo had said nothing about protection from this fearsome beast. Orpheus's body shook as he stared up, feeling tiny and vulnerable. He was not a fighter. His music was his only weapon. But again, he thought of Eurydice somewhere behind this beast. He would fight with what he could. He would sing on. His voice soared, and even Cerberus was moved. The beast's three heads fell softly to the shadowy ground. Orpheus stepped gently over the softened paws and shaggy locks of hair. He wandered on amongst the shades and the formless rocks, through the dark and the cold. Until finally, he arrived at Hades' throne. An enormous crowd of silently weeping spirits stood at his back. The throne was a vast, dark structure— Hades and Persephone looked down on this little mortal from far above, impassive. Orpheus stared up at their blank faces, terrified. There was no warmth there, no kindness. But Orpheus had no choice. He was determined to wake their hearts. He bowed his head, supplicant, and began his plea. Coming up, Orpheus makes his bid to recover Eurydice from death itself. Now back to the story. Orpheus, 
shattered by the death of Eurydice, sang a song so heartbreaking that it moved man, nature, and gods. He traveled to the underworld to see if he could move Hades, the god of death. Perhaps his music would motivate the lord of the underworld to return Eurydice to the living. He began his plea at the feet of Hades' throne. O great Hades, king of the underworld, you are mighty amongst men, mighty even amongst gods. You hold the strings of death and pull them as you will, as is your right. All mortals one day will be called home to Hades, to death. But my beloved bride, Eurydice, was called so swiftly, so soon after our wedding day. Before her best years had even begun, I have tried to accept her loss, but I cannot. And so I come to you to beg for her life. Many men are moved by grief when their wives die. Many wives are racked with despair when they lose their husbands. Mothers and fathers grieve for lost children and children for lost parents. Why should I provide mercy for you and you alone? If you will listen, I will sing you the song of my story, and perhaps song will move you where speech fails. You may sing. The rulers of the underworld listened as Orpheus sang of his beautiful bride, wild and free as the forest that killed her. They listened as he sang of Hymen's arrival on their wedding day and his sputtering torch. They sat still as stone as he sang of Eurydice's cold body, lying in the darkness on the forest floor, and of the shattered life he lived in its wake. But Orpheus watched Hades and Persephone intently as he sang his devastating melody. He saw that slowly their hard, closed faces softened. As he crooned on at their feet, he started to hope that the king and queen of death were moved. He sang until his breath was spent and his face covered with salty tears. Finally, Orpheus fell silent. He wasn't sure if his song had done enough, but all he could do now was wait. You ask what no mortal has the right to ask, Orpheus. You ask to reverse the fates, to replace death with life. But your song moves even my shadowy heart to anguish. I too have loved and suffered for love. I too have insisted on fighting for love, even when it seemed it was not fated. Oh, Hades, great king, I knew the tale of your love for your beautiful queen. That you could see love here too moves me in turn. Are you willing to consider returning Eurydice to life. Patience, boy. I will, indeed, grant your request and give you back your beloved Eurydice. Thank you. Thank you! But this is Hades, the underworld, the kingdom of shadows and darkness. We do not let our own go easily here. 
you will have to show with your actions, as well as your song, that you are willing to risk all. To prove you will resist all temptation. To show strength and resolve that rivals that of an ancient oak tree in a shadowy grove. Are you willing to do that? Your condition is more than fair. Only tell me what I must do, and I shall do it. Your task is this. You must traverse the path back to the living earth. You must pass through the shaded groves full of spirits and across the river Styx. You must climb up the long rocky paths and exit at the maw of the gates of Taenarus. There you will climb out of the dark into the world of the living. And you must make the journey all without looking behind you. In your wake, Eurydice will follow. If you make it back to the light without looking back, your bride will follow you into the sunshine. From that moment on, she'll be no shade, but a living, breathing woman. She will run free across the earth as she once did, amongst the glorious flowers of the living fields. And you? You shall have your love and joy again. The rhythm of euphoria will color your songs once more, and all the world shall smile and laugh instead of weep. I accept your challenge with gratitude, Hades. Orpheus bowed and backed away from Hades, tears streaming down his face now at his luck. His song had moved even Hades, and Hades, in return for music, had granted mercy. No need to linger here in the underworld now. The sooner he made it back to the bright fields of the living world, the sooner he would hold Eurydice's warm, pulsing body. He began his reverse journey towards earth and light and love. Orpheus's strong legs leapt back through the shadowy groves of quivering spirits. Cerberus stood aside as he bounded past. Charon's boat cut swiftly back across the water. Then he began his ascent as he strained against the upward slopes back towards the gates and the light. He walked with confidence and excitement. He smiled at every lingering shade and cluster of dark, calcified trees. For behind him was Eurydice. But he didn't sing. He was quiet for the first time since he lost his bride. A lament no longer felt right. Finally, he had hope. But it wasn't time for a joyful melody yet, either. For still he was without his love. She still walked amongst the dead, even if she was behind him. But was she behind him? He listened carefully, but he heard nothing. Not the whisper of a ghostly cloak, not the rustle of light footsteps, nor the soft breath of exertion. Fear crept into his heart. He started to drag his feet, and his excitement drained softly, steadily, out of his body. His senses seemed to split, 
Eyes forward on the path ahead, ears straining desperately behind, hungry for a whisper of her, his love, his perfect bride. He told himself he couldn't hear anything because shades were silent wisps of energy. They didn't make noise in the way of living men. Surely that was it. Orpheus walked on. He tried to imagine Eurydice behind him. He remembered the lightness in her step, the way sunlight glinted in her long hair, the wild, sprightly joy with which she ran into fields of flowers and through dark, dense woods, the way her warm smile, like a thousand suns, illuminated his entire world. But Orpheus could not quiet another train of thought, a less hopeful one, one that racked his brain and his heart with savage anxiety. Gods were not always honest. Perhaps Hades' tears had been fake. Perhaps he had lied. Perhaps he hadn't been moved by Orpheus's song and had, with quiet malice, played a cruel joke. Eurydice wasn't behind him at all. Or perhaps Hades had offered his challenge in good faith, but Eurydice had been lost amongst the shades and fallen away from his path. The darkness beat down on Orpheus's brow as he considered the most awful possibility of all. Perhaps death had changed Eurydice, changed her heart. Perhaps she hadn't wanted to follow him and had turned away. Perhaps in death, she wasn't his as she'd been in life. Orpheus's legs strained along the steep, rocky path towards the gates. He was so close to the earth to the light, to his prize, if she was behind him at all. But there, at the top of the slope, he came to a stop. Dread and despair filled his heart. Eurydice wasn't behind him. He knew it. He couldn't bear the agony any longer. And so, he turned. Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. Next week, in part two, we'll hear about the consequences of Orpheus's failure to meet Hades' challenge. You can find more episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythology, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythology on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Mythology in the search bar. If you enjoy mythology, you'll love my other podcast, Tales. Tales presents fairy tales the way they were originally told, orally and unadulterated. Traditional fairy tales aren't exactly suitable for children, and every other Saturday, we dive into another dark, classic tale. 
And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll be back next week with the conclusion to this epic tale. Mythology was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Mythology was written by Nora Battelle. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Rebecca Ahrens-Diamond, Mike Capozzi, Alistair Murden, and Steve Pinto. Pinto.